Hey folks, welcome back to episode 78 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast with Dave Salmoni. You know, this is a uh, an interesting conversation that we have with Dave today. It's not uh, it's not a I'm not going to say uh, it's a bit of an atypical guest, but before we kind of get into the details about this, we got uh, two other fellas joining us here. Sheldon is sitting over in Brandon. Tristan is sitting over at his pad in Lockport. Sheldon, what's happening in Brandon today, man? Uh, you know, just uh, tried to enjoy it and tried to enjoy a day off. Had to go into work to do some training, though, uh, which was unfortunate to kind of screwed up my day off, but it needed to be done. So I had to go in and get that done. Um, but yeah, Dave Salmoni's coming on right away. And anybody that's listening that doesn't know who this, this guy is, um, just Google him. And he's got so much stuff out so much like movies and videos and stuff all about big cats and big animals. He's on uh, animal planet discovery. He's been on like talk shows like Kimmel and all those other things. He's a really exciting guest. And like Chase said, it's, it's not, it's not like it's a super different guest by any means, but it's a very interesting guest. So super happy to have him coming on right away. Quick Tristan, what are you doing over there? It looks like you're drinking a beer. Yeah. Just, uh, keeping things lubricated over here. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad that Dave can now add the panoramic outdoors podcast to his resume and, you know, (laughs) put that star on his, uh, on his chest there. Uh, Lockport's interesting right now because like that, all the snow has gone off the ice, so it's basically like this like melted skating rink out by the locks, and people are just hammering the fishing because you could sit out there with no no shack or anything for the last little while. Wouldn't a melted skating rink be a pool? Yeah, like but like I mean, it's not a very deep pool, right? So like you can you, you'll get by a wading <laughs> pool, but yeah, I don't know. I but you know this past weekend it it kind of felt normal for the first time in a while i don't want to use that word lightly but like it was just kind of like we were able to get outside do some things where it wasn't frigid cold and you know be able to be out on the lake and i i I saw you guys on the lake for the first time and like how long like it was cool to be outside doing things and not be like kind of quarantined away i guess yeah it's been it's been strange times and i it was yeah like you said it almost felt like normal being able to like get out and the, the nice thing about right now too is like the the freedom that you have outside like you don't have to be bundled up inside a tiny ice fishing shelter with each other all day you can you know explore outside do activities outside or you know just fishing outside on those nice days is is awesome yeah that's for sure i was like let's see how many free ad reads i can do here in this little short story but the three of us met out on the lake we set up the citizen canvas tent with the g stove got that thing fired up we rolled back the floor halfway and and uh drilled some holes and did some fishing we also got to enjoy some railroad roasters coffee which i'm gonna say is probably in the top three of my like favorite coffees right at the moment and the other thing that was really cool is that I got to finally meet Willie, and uh, what a beautiful dog Tristan you got. He's uh, he's quite the character. Yeah, he's uh, he likes to socialize too. We were fishing next to some guys we know. Shout out to Paulie D, um, and uh, he he did not want to leave Paul alone there. Paulie yeah. D, yeah. Paul's but a big yeah. dog guy. Yeah. He, he built a, oh, yeah. built an instant instant uh, relationship Report. with that a yeah. bond with that dog as soon as he got there. I could tell. 
And you know what, Sheldon? I drink a lot of coffee myself. Maybe not a lot of coffee, but I drink enough and like I'm pretty particular about mine. And I think you're right that that railroad roasters is pretty like um, pretty top notch stuff. So that's it. Yeah, if if it fueled me for the day, and I'm just not, I'm not gonna like brag right now, but uh, I caught seven walleye, and then Chase lost one in the hole of mine. So I mean, what limit? Like, Chase, Chase, Chase. What did you? Uh, what are you gonna say there about that fishing excursion? Well, you know, uh, I'm glad you caught all those seven. And, uh, you know, if I if I were to have caught the seven and you only caught one, then I would have had to listen to you complain. So either way, I'm going to listen to you beak me or listen to you complain. I'd rather have you beak me. Otherwise, I'd be hearing about, oh, I drove all the way out there. I spent all this gas money. You know, my tires are wearing out, parts on the truck, all this shit. So, you know, you're welcome for putting you on the fish. <laughs> drilling your holes <laughs> least he could do is tip a guy um, well you know what i'm i'm very I, I appreciated that a lot and not only that but you threw in the the pit barrel in the back of the truck we had that out there and chase was making some awesome food and i'm just going to kind of list off a few of the things and i'm not going to go into detail but he um did some chicken wings kind of for um like a snack and i'm going to mention too that both uh, chase and i are kind of on a a diet that we're not eating too many carbs, chasing a little bit different one. So we're, our selection of food is a little bit limited, but we had chicken wings. Uh, we had some smoked pineapple and smoked jalapenos with yogurt, which was unbelievable. Um, we had a deer roast that we had later on that night. We had shrimp. We, we ate actually like kings. And so, yeah, thank you very much, Chase, for putting me on the fish, feed me all day. And, uh, and yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful time. But the pit barrel barbecue if you guys have not heard about this thing yet, you clearly have to go listen to the rest of our podcast episodes, like one through 77 now. Um, and this is going to be the 78th time that we talk about it. But Pit Barrel Barbecues, go to www.pitbarrelcooker.com. You can get into one of their barbecues, their Pit Barrel Cooker, whatever you want to call them, um, and, and very inexpensive. They're one of the best barrel-type systems that you can buy. Uh, on the market in the United States, it's free shipping. And in Canada, they have a map that shows you everywhere in Canada where they sell them. So if you're looking to get one, check it out. And if you have any questions, please give us a DM or uh, email us, whatever you like to do, and get into a pit barrel cooker tomorrow or today. You know what was really www.pitbarrelcooker.com. Sorry about that. You know what was really cool about the pit barrel this weekend too? I had uh, I had just enough coals to do like one full load of coals in that thing. And I managed to bang out appetizers, the main course, and dessert with one shot of coals on that baby. Yeah, I thought it was pretty awesome. Cook it up. How about an, how about this for an ad read? How those holes you punch, Chase? You punch two of them with a uh, Eskimo ice auger, ten inch blade, and broken throttle cable. Yeah, man, we're just. Reefing on it with the set of pliers to get it to go. I had uh, I had the the vice grips on the throttle cable today when we we're perch fishing, <laughs> and operating that baby solo gets a little dangerous. Let me tell you, <laughs> a couple of dicey oh. moments there. I've uh, I know a couple of people who got some uh, had some injuries. One one person I know got their thumb ripped off from trying to like grab the auger while it's spinning. So it's Ooh. you know uh, it's uh, it's a dangerous situation for sure but we made it through so we got dave on the podcast today are we excited about dave or what's the what's the consensus on dave as the cat guy i'm very excited about dave uh you know he's 
He's not really Dave's not a hunter for starters, which is uh as like a, a mainly hunting podcast, I think I think that's a interesting guest to have on. Um but Dave is a huge conservationist and he sees the value in having these conversations with hunters as being um it comes at it almost as like a, a shared management. Um all interest groups, you know, need to come together for conservation was was uh, one of my takeaways yeah for sure you're gonna hear it for yourself but like the guy since day one since we started since we started talking to him uh via email he was just like super nice and like you know responded with everything really quick he's and one of his comments i I won't forget he's like oh man you guys are canadian of course i'll talk with you guys and you know we have a we have a like a wonderful conversation about hunting an animal and animals etc and he kind of just I think we uh, we kind of all agree that it's just we just need to have more conversations when it comes around comes to some of these issues we have in the world and say with hunting and with animal rights and whatever you just got to have a conversation. I think this is a great way to kind of hear what he has to say and uh, I guess at the end of the day whatever you take from it take from this podcast episode I think it's going to be beneficial because uh, it gives you a few different ideas and um, platforms to kind of think about but well, I know I'm looking forward to it, and I, I uh, can't wait to see what Dave has to share. And uh, so unless there's any more questions from the boys around the table, introducing number 78, Dave Salamone. All right. Well, today's guest, you might have seen him on TV. You might have seen a few of his movies, Animal Plant, Discovery Channel. We've got Dave Salamone on the line. Dave, how's it going today? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're just great. And I also got Chase here. I might as well introduce him while I'm while I'm at it. Chase, what's going on over there? Hey, man. Uh, just uh, excited about the podcast here, Dave. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on with us. My pleasure. Should be fun. I don't often get to talk to Canadians. <laughs> right on. So, Dave, how we normally start these podcasts is we actually have a little thing we call five burning questions, and what we'll do is we'll just ask you kind of five quick questions. Um, you can answer them long long form, short form. It's just kind of to get to know each other and get the get the listeners to know who you are. Um, so if you're ready to rock with that, I will start off with the first question. Let's hit it. Uh, you have one last meal. What are you going to eat and what are you going to drink with it? Steak, scotch. Easy. Double S. <laughs> yeah, darn right. I mean, you, you, you can screw it up by thinking a lot of things. Uh, my favorite game meat, I think, has always been either Kudu or, or Eland. But I'd say if it was my last one, it just has to be a plain old steak. Plain old beef steak. Nice. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just take you down a little bit further from that. But uh, what cut of steak and what kind of scotch are you drinking? Are you one of the guys that like that's into the really peaty stuff or or what's your uh, scotch game? I'm, uh, I'm, I like all scotches. There isn't really a scotch <laughs> you'll find I don't like. Uh, I would say the on the bar always I have a Highland Park. But I think the mood takes me i always have a really smoky and a really peaty sitting around somewhere uh my wife i made the huge mistake in getting my wife into scotch when i first met her she's like oh that's disgusting uh and then i was celebrating the end of a big project and i spent a few extra dollars on a, a bottle that i would never have bought before and then when she but she was with me she's like oh i gotta know what a that kind of priced bottle of scotch tastes like and she loved it and I'm, oddly, from there, she now drinks my scotch every night with me, and it, it, it was a mistake. 
That's awesome. We always uh, seem normally what happens here, Dave, is we record these at night. And so usually we're sipping on a scotch or a beer, um, but scheduling we're in the afternoon. So we're I under really the waters and coffee. Blame my kids. <laughs> uh, second question. If you did have one last concert, they could be alive or dead. Who would you go and watch? Concert. Man, I could tell you my answer would probably be Led Zeppelin. It, uh, I did get to see Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. It was great. But my favorite concert of all time, I got to see Rage Against the Machine play in L.A. after they hadn't played there in 10 years. They had they played in the uh, Coliseum, and I think the mosh pit, mosh pit was 66,000 people. Whoa, and I wow. would say if I could recreate that again, maybe I'd, I'd go back for that. So it would be either of those two. <laughs> those are definitely great answers. Um, Number third, number third, number three question here is uh, you've traveled quite a bit around the world. What has been your favorite spot or a spot that you like to go and visit still? So I would say one part of me is still the family guy. So that family cottage that I grew up with, if I had to pick one, that would be it just because I am a sentimental guy. And because I have traveled so much of my life, coming home is really what I want to do. Um, so that would be that. But as far as, far as if you don't include a home, then Africa, Southern Africa particularly, is a home. It was a place where it felt like home after I got used to it. I, uh, it still excites me to be there. The, the the species that you find there are are exciting to me. Uh, but because I've been there long enough, I've lived in those bush long enough. It's also a place I can kind of turn my brain off in the right circumstance and just do autopilot. Whereas I find oftentimes in a new environment, you're too careful about a species you don't know about, uh, a terrain you don't know about, that kind of thing. You know, I, I do find that in Southern Africa, in particular circumstance, I can just turn it all off, take a deep breath and enjoy myself. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, and kind of getting into the next question, you kind of touched on it there. The work that you do, you are um, specialized in big cats. Um, if you had kind of one favorite cat or even an animal, what would you, uh, what would you put that as? That's the toughest question I get asked the most often. And I feel <laughs> like one of the passions that I've had has always been getting to know animals, right? Like, and it's having a relationship with one particular lion or one particular tiger. And over the years, you know, there, there's some tigers I've lived with for five years. There's prides of lions that I've introduced myself to where I've lived amongst that pride for a certain periods of time. So I think my favorite animals transcends into sort of like favorite people. Like, you know, you probably don't have a favorite brother or favorite mom or dad. You just kind of have things you like about individuals, I guess. So instead of a favorite species, which would be very difficult for me to to have, I have, I have some favorite individual of that species. So, for example, you know, I have a favorite lion that I've met and I've had a favorite tiger that I've hung out with rather than, if you made me choose which I like better, a lion or a tiger, I couldn't. How do you how do you define those those characteristics in those in those big cats and and like what what are some of them that makes them your favorites? You know, the one thing that I always realize is that your personality does determine what kind of species you get along with. You know, in my particular passion, the idea that I wanted to just have a friendship with an animal, it's that boyhood idea that luckily for me transitioned into a career or or, or a life path. Um, so to do that, you had to build trust. The first thing I need to do to be pals with an elephant or a hippo or a lion was to, to, to build that trust, to learn how they communicate, learn, you know, maneuver my body and my posture and my tone in a way that I can communicate back with them. So 
I because I'm a dominating large kind of a boisterous guy, you know, the big dominant animals were the ones that just really liked me better. You know, if it was always a horse, the horse was a little bit skittish of me. I was a little bit too confident, moved too fluently, and the horses would get skittish because I I move a lot more like a predator than than, than a prey species. And you know, a male lion, if I want to shift my position and I just go ahead and shift it, it's not going to make that male lion nervous in any way. But that's just my posture. So I guess my point is, confidence is something that really transcends with me. Um, intellect, where it's not like I've never really had a passion for the snakes or the the crocodiles, even though I like them. They're not a real thinking species as to how they interact with their world. They're more reactive. Whereas, you know, an elephant, man, like they really are brilliant animals, you know, almost as smart as we are, in my opinion, and smarter in some ways. Uh, so that was also something that I always sent, you know, tended to, to gravitate towards because although probably in my early days, my films all looked like I was this crazy guy that would just jump in front of any old animal. So much work went into it, studying, learning, understanding, really getting a sense for how they work, how they make decisions in order to figure out how I could build that trust. And then once you had that trust, then you could move forward into a relationship. Yeah, that's interesting, man. Um, and I guess my last question, I think we all know that Dave, he's a, he's a, works alongside animals and stuff like that. But if you weren't in the line of work working with animals, where do you think you'd be? It's a good question. I, uh, I often ask that when I have big gaps between projects. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I feel like when I was young, I wasn't the type to follow any rules, any teacher. If a teacher told, told me I was dumb, my first thought was, well, that's a stupid teacher. You know, it, it, and because of that, I probably would have always done something unique or different only because I didn't like to be told what to do. I didn't like to follow the norms. And so that's probably why I went on the path that I did. Now that I'm a dad with, you know, two kids, a wife at a home and, you know, and, and my, my, I prefer to have a little bit more stable lifestyle because of my kids. Like who knows I could be, I, I'm building a house right now only because I've been locked down with COVID. So maybe I'd be a builder or something who knows, but you know, that would that that would be a lot tougher. Maybe, you know, if you could be a, maybe a guide. I don't know if you can be a guide in like the an Ontario bush or something like that. That'd be fun too. But yeah, I don't know if it's worth my money. <laughs> well, that that wraps up our five burning questions, and it actually kind of brings us into right into the meat and potatoes of the podcast here. Um, where did it all start for you, Dave? Like, uh, I mean, we'll get into kind of like what you're doing uh, currently and, and how you got to it. But like, where did it all start for you? Um, I mean, we, we kind of talked before we started recording here that, you know, you did some uh, work in Alaska with bears. You've done some other things. But where did the passion start? Where And how do you uh, fulfill where you're at until where you're at now? Yeah, I'd say like like most animal lovers, I don't think many of us remember when they didn't love animals. Right. And so. As long as I can remember wherever there is a, a paper trail of my life, you'd see me saying I love animals or speeches or book reports or, you know, at a real basic young level, it was always animals that gravitated uh, my attention. Uh, how that transitioned into a career was always by mistake, really. I was just one of those guys that never thought about what am I going to do with my life? It was a lot more what do I want to do right now? So when I left high school and I barely got into university. It was kind of like the last year of my high school that I decided, okay, no, I better study now because I really do want to go off and party with my friends like everybody else. The reason I went into biology was really only because it was the only sub subject that I um, was interested in. And it was there that I met some really good professors 
uh, had less of kind of a, a ruling. They, the professor doesn't care if you do your work or shows up to school. It's 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 you that decides. And I think that meshed with my personality a lot more. And then it was the school that I went to. I went to Laurentian. I know we we did mention you're you're possibly having Joe Hammer on uh, another podcast. He'll be an, he'll be an interesting guy. But he was one of those types of professors that had things that you could actually do as a student. And he said, hey, we need people to go man this deer check station for the hunters. You need to. You know, they did a project where they brought in some elk and they needed manpower. And so if you had that interest, you could actually get hands on. I was lucky enough to choose a school that was in the bush. And I actually, in my fourth year thesis with Joe and another guy named Frank Mallory, um, where I was out with my telemetry tracking bears every day. And then that's the love. That's when I'm like, that's when the passion for animals met. Oh, this there's there's things you can do. Still, it didn't want to be a career for me. It was just like, wow, I'd rather be out tracking bears than I would be sitting in a lab somewhere. So then school transitioned into, well, I actually want to be more hands-on. I went to a privately owned zoo that did a lot of animal training because they believe their animals don't belong inside a cage. They should come out and they should exercise and have fun and entertain their brain. Uh, and I really bought into that. So then I became an animal trainer, which then tumbled itself into a weird tiger conservation project, then TV, and then into hey, whatever you want to do that's interesting and passionate, go ahead and do it. So uh, I really just fumbled around until I was an adult with responsibilities and went, oh, crud, this is my job. I better, I better, <laughs> you know, operate differently now. And it wasn't crud that I said, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's cool. Chase, you got something on the key there? I, uh, I think that that's, that's quite an interesting path. And like when I, when I think about, uh, I mean, some stuff in my life and just uh, how people operate and, and you kind of say how you had like this uh, uh, living in the now moment, doing cool stuff and like didn't really think a, a whole lot ahead. It's like, what do you want to do now? And I think that's probably pretty sweet. And it's it's like a it's a good like I feel like there's a lot less stress in people's lives when they do stuff like that because they're you're, you're you're happy with what you're doing now. And then you change what you're doing now. And, and often like when I think about stuff in my life, just how it's progressed and it's like. The plan ever ever sticks to the the exact path that you that you kind of put forward on but is what i find super interesting about you is how like it did progress and then it's there you are in university and you're tracking bears and then like umpteen years later or whatever it might be now you got all these tv shows and and working on these other conservation projects in africa and all this other huge stuff um how I'm I'm super interested how the transition to that tiger conservation project came about. <laughs> well, that was that was the the yada yada I glossed I glossed over a little bit. Uh, it's it's not so difficult in that obviously when I when I took that job as a animal trainer, I transitioned very quickly there into big cats w through a real a major mistake. A lion got out. It came walking towards me, and you know, rather than run away from the male lion, I just thought, I, since I was three years old, I had a picture of a lion on my wall, and I just thought to myself, man, if I could just touch it, I, like, I really wanted to feel it and smell it, and like, and that's all that, and I, that I remember the lion coming around the corner, and, and rather than thinking, holy crap, I'm in big trouble, it was like, oh, he seems calm, I, I, this is my chance, and so obviously, the trainer who the lion had ditched came running around the corner and went, like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you, know, you can't just walk up to a big male lion and give him a pet. Um, but because of that moment, he's like, well, this lion obviously likes you and you liked it. 
why don't you come into work early every day and you know take them for walks with me so that's how i transitioned into an actual big cat trainer instead of doing what everyone else would do is like train rats and birds and then horses and then maybe get upgraded to a camel and 15 years down the late down the road you'd then get to try a tiger or something so i was a big cat trainer within weeks of being there um and then my boss at the time was friends with a filmmaker but that filmmaker had made all of his money on being one of the first ever to take his dad's hunting farm and turn it into a photographic safari place. And he really was selling that uh, ecotourism model as a way to save big cats. And in fact, at that point in the world, Africa was the only continent on the planet that was saving their big cats. And it was through this ecotourism model. So he thought to himself, well, why don't we do the same thing with tigers? But he didn't want to capture a tiger in the wild and slap him into an exotic territory you know, that he made in Africa, what he thought was, well, if I if I take all this dilapidated sheep farm where even sheep couldn't live there anymore, they just literally run down eroded land, you put a fence around it, 35,000 hectares, uh, regrew the land, stocked it with game, and then he said then he would take these tigers from captivity and put them into this wild situation as a way to show it as a working model for Asia. So my role in that, he came over to Canada, was get me two tigers, teach them, be the first person in the world to ever teach them how to hunt and fend for themselves in the wild, let them go. And so that was my, my part of that whole process. He happened to be a filmmaker. Discovery Channel happened to hear about this. So that's how the whole process uh, transitioned to me, one, into filmmaking, two, into the idea that you're really good, if you really want to find your path with animals, you've got to just walk your own path rather than let other people tell you what your path should be. Uh, that pro that program was the one that really uh, set me off on a place where I was confident to just say, I have this curiosity, I have this passion, and I want to figure it out. You know, I lived in a tent for about five years on that project, just up on a mountain in Africa with those two tigers. And uh, you learn a lot about yourself, but you learn a lot about what's important. And you, you mentioned about having that stress-free life. I know it's very easy to people like myself who say, you know, don't worry about your responsibilities. Go do what you love and hope you can get paid for it. I have the luxury of saying that because it did work out for me. I'm sure there's lots of people that have tried it and then they've gone broke and they've had to go get their job at McDonald's uh, to make ends meet. And and so I, I understand that I'm fortunate and lucky to have, you know, walked this path. Um, but I don't I don't think you can walk that path without a little bit of, I don't care what happens to me. I think I'm confident that I'll land on my feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of uh, brings it right into right into uh, the next kind of topic I kind of want to talk about is like big cats in Africa and a little bit of trophy hunting, if you don't mind uh, talking about that there, Dave. Yeah. Um, I guess like my biggest question, I, I think that there's a lot of people, uh, especially in North America, that might not understand the the business model and the the model for just the existence of big cats and how some of the trophy hunting might work and some of it, how it might not work. Do you mind just maybe going through a little bit of that stuff? Yeah, it's a super complicated issue. And obviously me being an animal lover, people are almost always a little bit hesitant of my information, but I would start by saying there is two parts of me. There's Dave Salmoni in my opinion of how I feel about those things. And there are, there's Dave Salmoni, this guy who, who I really believe my big mission right now is to, get, to do conservation. And the way to do that is to get information to people and let them make their own decisions. So with that being said, trophy hunting is one of those things 
that there's lots of misinformation around uh, that a trophy hunter or someone who might consider becoming a trophy hunter have to consider before they say, yep, I'm going to become a trophy hunter or not. Taking aside the fact that people maybe on my side of the fence say, oh, how dare you hunt a, an animal just for fun or sport or whatever it is. That's not my position. That's not where I won't sit here and preach about that stuff. The, the trophy hunting side of it is there is a suggestion in Africa, a very poor country that says the business of trophy hunting creates jobs. Therefore, if those jobs are created, it protects the wild land that exists because really what we're talking about is land use. So is this a, a functional land use uh, in Africa? And the answer undoubtedly is yes. Whether the conservationists like it or not, hunting as a land use system works, it creates jobs, it's humongous revenue out there. And because of that, those landowners that have to decide what to do with their land decide to themselves, well, I'll keep it wild. I'll keep a space for all of these wild animals because I'm making good money off it. Now, this is where, where the water gets a bit muddy. The difficulty with that is it makes they make so much money that they don't typically manage it in a way that's sustainable. So because of that, very often, almost every landowner has to stock land every year. Um, absolutely, the the health of wild populations that, that, that allow um, trophy hunting, it does dege degenerate the, the, the health of the gene pool and all the things that you would worry about, those things are true. Um, but the, de the decision is, ac is actually more about what you believe in. So if, if you believe, which I think in a lot of places and a lot of the African communities that are saying, please leave us alone, we would like to continue to trophy hunt. I think, I think the argument for them is the only other option for them is farming. Right. And farming is terrible for for wildlife because they just kick all the wildlife off and there's no home for any animals uh, and it doesn't pay as well as trophy hunting. The more purist conservationists would say, well, why don't we just keep it wild and try our best to make it ecotourism? Well, the fact of the matter is not every single wild space uh, allows for ecotourism uh, or, or is suitable for ecotourism. So this is why there's a debate. When a trophy hunter says we're massive conservationists, that may be true or not. It has nothing to do with the fact that they shoot animals, right? So the, the act of killing an animal isn't conservation in any real sense of the term. However, I mean, that's that's not true. You're right. If you talked about subsistence hunting, I'm sure. That, but if I talk about trophy hunting itself, mm -hmm. going out, yeah. finding the trophy and saying, I'm going to kill that guy, that's not really an act of conservation. The argument is we are creating jobs. We are, you know funding an economy, and a lot of times they are animal lovers that build these humongous conservation groups that do a lot of good. Those acts are not the same as the act of trophy hunting. So I think it's more about the individual. I would say, guys, if you are going to go and trophy hunt, you just have to accept all of the parts of it. Don't go in there thinking that you're, every dollar you're spending is going straight back to wildlife, because it's not. It's Africa. If you think you're doing that species or that animal any good you're not but is it are you the devil and are you ruining all of these problems well, that's not true either there is a middle ground there somewhere and i think it's for everyone to decide their own animal ethics in that way did i did i touch on everything that makes sense there or is there other things holes in that that i, that I didn't touch on no that was uh yeah that was very well said i uh it's, it's one of those things because um you know 
when it comes to the trophy hunting, I, I have no interest in it, to be honest, with, uh, like, let's say, uh, exotic animals. But, yeah. like, in Manitoba or in Canada here, like, I do, uh, yeah, I do look for, for good animals. But I always kind of, and I don't know if it's just something that I say to myself to make me feel better, but I always say that no matter what animal it is that I harvest, it is a trophy for me, in, in regardless of the size or the shape. Yeah. But that being said, you know, if, if one dominant animal came over, you know, an, a less dominant animal out into the field, I am going to probably take that dominant animal. Um, so when it comes to the kind of comparing my thoughts on, on say, the m model of hunting out in North America compared to Africa, it gets, like you said, really muddy in the water because I don't know personally enough, although there's lots of shows and lots of uh, literature to, to figure it out, it just seems to, to, it seems to be hard to find the proper literature or the proper documentary it's been politicized right so right. the the trophy hunters are so desperate to hold on to to their idea that because they do love animals i, I don't believe some if they say they love animals then they love animals they just love them differently than i do but they'll never tell you that almost 90 percent of the hunts that you can sign up for right now if you go online to buy a lion it'll, they'll tell you it's a wild lion i guarantee you that lion was born in captivity it arrived on that property 60 days before they let it out into their, I think the minimum is 5,000 hectares. They train it to the back of the vehicle that you're going to be hunting from. They'll tell you every story in the league. That is 90% of the hunts. I know that because I did it like 12 documentaries. I have a production company in South Africa, so we've embedded ourselves in that industry a zillion times. The bone trade and the lion trade in that industry is awful. And it's the worst part of what happens in that trophy hunting world. And because of that bruise, that's not really, I mean, I guess my point is everyone's so hot to defend all these, the worst case scenarios and everything. It'd be like, it would like, like, it'd be like me taking on all the responsibility for every animal trainer that ever beat an elephant. Like I, I'm not that guy. I've never done it. So I, I'm assuming there are trophy hunting places in Africa that do it right. But the truth of the matter is that's not normal. And you have absolutely no way of knowing who's lying to you or not. Now you talk about the North American model. There are some places in North America where people literally go and they identify a particular guy through, you know, through game ca game capture cameras and all those types of things, and they'll go out and harvest that particular animal. And in that particular case, you can have a you can have an effect on the population as a whole because of the way some of that hunting. And I I think more about bear hunting. You know, the bear hunting where you're baiting, you're baiting, you're baiting, you're baiting all year, and then the big male you finally get him, and he's the dominant guy, and he probably mates six sows there's some negative impact that could happen there but if you're just out deer hunting and you've got your deer or your moose hunting or whatever kind of hunting that you like to do and you've got your tag and you happen across the biggest mother trucker you've ever seen <laughs> it's pretty unlikely that that style of hunting really will have any effect on the gene pool or the population we all know the numbers that you have to i think you have to harvest more than 18 percent of a population to have any effect on the actual numbers and i think if you were, you know, to put, I don't know how many hours of hunting you would have to put in to be able to say, okay, here's six big males in six different spots and I'm going to choose this one. I don't think that's possible. Whereas in Africa, that's exactly possible. When you're, when it's a big business trophy hunting, you know where every elephant is on your property. You know where every lion is on your property. You know their names, their ages, you know everything about them. And then when someone buys it, you walk up to it and you put a bullet, bullet in its head. Those two things are not the same. I don't think you would get a conservationist but have much of an issue with what you're describing when you're saying, well, 
of course, I'd like the bigger buck because it's 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 kind of why I'm there. And 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 you know, I I, I just don't think you would have a conservation uh, conservationist knocking on your door saying you're screwing things up. Man, that's su- super interesting conversation we're having right now, and and uh, it it's really eye opening for me the uh, kind of what what's happening over in Africa there in regards to like trophy hunting and and all these different operations i guess that are that are um providing these 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 opportunities for people and uh providing the trophy hunting and stuff like that um what uh when it comes to like big cat conservation in africa um obviously you're well versed over there what you were talking about you know they're either going to be like people that have land or are they going to be leaving for hunting or farming um is that kind of the the biggest threat for the big cats over there is is uh the agriculture i I don't know if you'd if you just say agriculture you just call it land use you know space you know it's a poor country and in a poor country animals are always third-class citizens so excuse me in a poor country animals are always third-class citizens and and because of that and it's fair you you mean you can't have people dying and saying oh, all of our money should go to you know the, to save the big cats, you've you've got to come up with a solution that works for everybody. So, in every in every conservation project that I've been a part of that is sustainable, uh, you have to have a community element to that thing because truthfully, no matter how much conservation you do, unless the community's behind it, it's not going to work. So, it goes back to that land use. Um, situation. If you're if you're really a pro conservation person, you would say the best land use is the ecotourism model. Even that has some negative impact on behavior and things like that. The way people drive jeeps and take pictures, etc. But it's not lethal, right? And you can manage populations and you can manage genetics. So as a conservationist, you have a lot more control on saying, all right, now I have this many white rhinos. I'm going to separate the three groups and let them start breeding and. And you and and as a conservationist behind that ecotourism model, you can start building populations to a point where you're like, okay, that species is feeling a lot better to me. Whereas if 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 you take the next land use model, that's wildlife. The only other one that I could think of is is hunting, right? You've either got ecotourism or you've mm-hmm. got hunting. And in some places, you have a bit of both. Um, so if you are if you were 100% hunting, it's not a sustainable land use. So what's the most popular place? Sorry, what's the most common scenario in in an actual wild environment where they do trophy hunting is they move in, they're very successful, so more people come, it creates tons and tons of jobs, and then it's dead five years later, everybody moves out. Poor management, I guess is my point to that, is even though it can work, it almost never does because it's not really the kind of, they don't have the, the, the government infrastructure to demand stop hunting and to enforce that stop of hunting you know when when someone comes into the village and says we got 30 grand us you're fine in the line regardless of what anybody says because right. it's, it's it's how could you not so and then obviously the, the third land use that doesn't work for anybody is farming uh, sorry from a wildlife perspective even though yes farming is a big part of the culture there and we do have to figure out ways for people to farm in the periphery of or around wild animals those two things are absolute conflicts Elephants love corn. So do you know. So do warthogs, uh, and and every other predator that that would be hunting the warthogs that are eating out of out of the field. You know, it creates farming creates a lot of conflict. The, the situation that typically works better from a conservational perspective 
in big cats and other big dangerous animals is fence out the people and create jobs for the people that have been fenced out. That's really what works. Um, yeah. So kind of just circling back to the, you know, big cat kind of conservation model and, and how things are working over in Africa. I just wanted to kind of ask you maybe a little bit of hypothetical. And if you don't feel like answering, that's totally fine too. But you know, what, what good does it do? Um, and I'm just going to use like, say Cecil the lion and I, I don't want to use it, but it's just to make matters easy here for people to, to kind of rebel against what happened to in that whole situation or people in North America to try, try to like stand up for the line. Is there any benefit to that? Or is it actually creating more, more controversy? So throughout? it's interesting that you say that. So this is a literally an entire different podcast. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm weeding between your question. And the question is really these social justice warriors, the cancel culture, do they have any value in conservation? Because if that's the question, then let me answer that. But certainly, sure. Cecil the Lion, particularly, the value in him is that he made so such big news, people like me had a chance to talk about it. You know, okay. I would say up until that point, I don't know, I can't tell you what happened. The day before Cecil was shot in the head, I'll guarantee there was 10 other male lions in that same area that got shot in the head, and the very next day, 10 more. And what made that one, and they all talk about, well, people knew him, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a million lions that, that fit that exact same description. I'm happy it happened because it really was an opportunity. It grew up so much bigger than anything I'm able to reach. I, it's why you always see me on, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or, or, or similar. It's because it reaches an audience that, that aren't already tuning in. I have an audience already. If, if you love big cats and you love wildlife, you're probably already coming to see my shows, to watch Animal Planet, Discovery Channel. Uh, so... I don't need to convince you that animals are awesome. It's the people like the Jimmy Kimmel audience that I can say, hey, animals are awesome. And in, in that particular case, Jimmy himself and every other host in the United States went out and, and, and gave their opinion of what was happening on trophy hunting. And I think that there is a big part of the world that needs to be offered the information and make their decision. Obviously, my my role in that is to give correct information, but also I, I, I almost always lean the cards against towards you know, pro-animal, obviously. But I, I, I try not to make any bones about it. Now, the second part of that question, is there any value to all of these cancel culture, attack culture? So, no, I guess is the answer. In fact, it is, huh. it is really counterintuitive. If you group yourself in with one of these social media wildlife people, and they, they don't call themselves trolls, but that's all they really do. You know, they go on and they they, they spew negativity. So, you know, I, I won't mention any particular group because I don't want to get any particular group to write us a particular letter. People who are identifying with who I'm describing right now, yes, I'm talking to you. If you go on your Twitter and your Facebook and you you heard yesterday that uh, uh, the Tiger King's a jerk and we love whatever, uh, Carol Baskin, or you, or you heard you hate Carol Baskin, and then we got on our Twitter and our Facebook and we said we hated it. And if you heard that the, the dentist who killed the season of the lion were supposed to go and shut down his dental practice, I don't know any animals that did any good from it. And I bet, I'll bet you that freaking famous dentist now, I'll guarantee you he has a hunting show somewhere. You know, he probably, you know, he probably doing great off of it. So my point to all of that is the louder the trolling in the animal space, and I understand the trolling has always been intensive in animals because people are passionate about animals. It's, it's, it's almost like religion. When people have an opinion about animals, they love heart. But the problem is we are such a reactive trolling culture in online 
that the, the, the actual truth gets hidden, right? So let's say if I was to go out there right now and say, hey, guys, trophy hunting isn't all bad. I'll guarantee you I would have way more F you, Dave Salmoni, you're an idiot and a jerk than I would. Oh, really, Dave? Tell me why. You know, and, and I get attacked every third month about something stupid. And then I think to myself, I'm going to get attacked by these people who, I don't know what they do for a living, but I guarantee you they didn't live in a tent for five years. I guarantee you they, they didn't, you know, embed themselves with animals for 46 years where I've had spinal surgery, nearly killed a number of times, nearly drowned a bunch of times. Like nobody loves animals the way I love animals. And yet you're going to attack me because, well, it's, it's socially popular. And I thought online your tweet was maybe a little bit off color. My point to all of that is we are losing in the conservational fight. We as animal lovers, people who care about global warming, we're losing and losing badly. And until people can say, all of us who care can say, all right, we're gonna all kind of get together in a certain way and speak in a certain voice. We're never all gonna agree on everything, but you can have intellectual debates and, and functional debates where the group can then make a decision and decide what the right thing is. Because I, th I can tell you right now, the don't know if they're supposed to hate going to zoos or they should go and support their zoos. People, people don't know if, if there should be animals on TV spreading the love or those animals need to be taken off animal risk. Nobody has any idea what to do, so they do whatever they feel is good. And unfortunately with that, the animals always come off second. Uh, so I think the, the social media negativity is probably the worst thing to happen to conservation since the internet was invented. Yeah, that's uh, some very interesting points. And the, and the reason, like this is exactly the reason why we wanted to get you on, because there is, I think there's always common ground. No matter what it may be, there might be something there where we can have a discussion and you can start educating each other on. We've talked about this when it comes to like, you know, vegans versus meat eaters or whatever it may be. There's, yeah, there's certain things that we don't like about it, about those types of groups, like, from one to another, but at the same time, there's also common ground there where we can have a discussion and educate each other on, on what's going on. Right. So that was like, that's exactly why we wanted to have you on. I mean, I, I think you said that really well. Um, and it just, and it just goes to show kind of like, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of room to learn and a lot of room to learn when it comes to animals and, and conservation, uh, and in, in any, in any model. So I appreciate that point. And I, and I think the interesting thing when I, when I, when we talked about trophy hunting, I told you there was Dave Salmoni and his opinions, and then there is me, what I try to do for a living. And and certainly, if you ask me, I'm always happy to say, well, I don't want to go out and hunt. But I appreciate the fact that there are subsistence hunters out there keeping our deer populations down so that those ecosystems can, can continue to run. And I also understand I could be sitting right next to somebody who thinks they align with me perfectly. Oh, I'm an animal hugger. I'm the bunny hugger. Dave and I... We bunny hug together, and then I go out and say something so stupid, like I, we need subsistence hunters to to keep our populations down, and then all of a sudden we're supposed to hate each other. Like it's that culture that I think you're talking about. That that if we don't get rid of it, eventually the rest of the world just thinks that we're noise. You, you, then you then you can't get any information out there, and we won't have anything. Hunters have always said, "Hey, we need to freaking save these animals around so that I I can continue to hunt." So. You know, they have they've hired maybe more purist non-hunting conservationists at times for Ducks Unlimited, for, you know, any other of these groups that do these things because the goal is the same. Let's let's keep these animals around. Let's enjoy them in our particular way. And when we disagree, let's go, oh, well, that's an interesting point. I don't know if I agree with that. Man, that, that is an amazing conversation. 
Dave coming in hot. I love it, man. Super. Oh, wait, I can get heated. <laughs> you're, you're, oh, I could just like tell the passion and, and how, how much thought that, that you've, you've put in all this. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. So Dave, um, man, just before we get back into, uh, I want to dive into Africa here for a second, but, um, yep. I was, uh, just like in regards to what you were saying there, I, I just feel like the, the entire world is, is like on this huge bender of like, crisis and and extremism i guess you could call it where you're either like on one far end of the edge or you're on the other far end and, and this is very tough for to like somebody to like just hang out in that middle ground and actually have a voice and make a difference and be like hey hey guys let's like can we like find the common common ground here but in, instead it's always i feel like it's just always you know you're on one side or you're on the other kind of thing and uh it's 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 frightening at some points, to be honest with you. Well, you're, I think you're absolutely right, and I also feel like it is the perfect path to to the one thing that none of us want. No matter what side of the fence you are, we all say we're animal lovers, right? We wouldn't have the conversation if we didn't love animals, except for maybe, as you say, maybe the vegan side of this debate where they just wish all, all animals, you know, I don't know what they wish, but I mean, I've heard at one point like the the sort of extreme vegan PETA kind of there should be no pets. There should be no, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's obviously means there's no animals and, and, and we'll just wipe them all out. And I don't know. I don't know how that system works. But <laughs> in general, those of us in this debate are suggesting we all love animals at a starting point And then we love them in different ways. And then, as, as you say, that the stones just start getting thrown because rather than understanding or listening or even just accepting, hey, you're different than me, uh, they, they, they just want to fight. And in that fight. It goes back to what I was saying. It creates that noise that the rest of the world, who actually are the rest of the the, the opinion maker and the decision makers, uh, are going to say, "Well, those all those animal people are crazy. I can't get a straight answer out of any of them." Yeah. So it is a path to ruin. Meaning, those conservation areas will get smaller. Those national parks will get smaller. The idea that we could say, "Hey guys, let's keep the rainforests around because of the 15 things we need from them," the debate's gone because. I don't know. The president of Brazil just says, screw it. My people are poor. Let's chop this place down. There isn't going to be any groups of people saying, well, why don't we pay you $150 million and we're going to keep this block? Yeah. That won't be there. So you're absolutely right. There, The idea, and I think this, I blame it on the internet because I don't think this happened. I started in TV when people would give me handwritten letters and then email started and then now what this world. But I think the internet built this world where you could just shout your opinion and anybody who disagrees with it is an idiot. And those groups get together that agree with those opinions um, and nothing constructive happened. In fact, it destructive, it, it all happens. And, and unfortunately, this is why I'm constantly biting my tongue. I live in a world where you, you can imagine I'm a passionate guy. You can't get to do, do what I do without passion because you wouldn't want to get chased by a lion regularly or have your spine busted more than once, or you know, nearly eaten by a shark multiple times if you didn't just really, really love it. So the passionate me would love to have those arguments and those debates, particularly in my 20s when you know every confrontation is a great confrontation, let's have them all. I'm at a point now where I actually really want to do something. I want to make a difference. I'd love to be remembered as somebody who had a voice that was pro-animal, not pro-hunting, not, ne- not anti-hunting, not whatever. Not, not, I just want to be pro-animals. And to be that, 
you got to bite your tongue sometimes and spit out all the information and hope that that the animal lover hears rather than mm-hmm. the, the, the debater, that negative person online. That person needs to get shut down somehow. And the person who loves animals needs to say, well, wait a minute. Dave's got an education. You know, Dave's also lived in those villages. Dave's also spent time with those species in those ecosystems. Maybe he has a point. Let's listen to what he says. I don't have to agree with everything he says. Uh, and that's the, that's that's kind of where I, I try to weave myself in that world. I have been working for Discovery and Animal Planet for 21 years now. And very often, because of that cancel culture, I'll have the communications department call me and say, Dave, you cannot talk about this. Right. And in my heart, it's like, no, I want to. This is a positive thing. I need to have this debate. I need to get out there. And if the world is going to try and cancel me, ask them. But unfortunately, that's then I then I have my voice taken away. Right. So what's better for animals that I lose this battle, but I stick around. I still get to go on my Kimmels. I still get my shows on Discovery and Animal Planet so that I can continue my voice. Or I got canceled five years ago because I told some guy to F off, you know, so I, I, I'm, I don't know what the right answers there are. I try to weave myself in. I like to have the debates and the discussions. I, I don't want to get canceled. Um, and so therein lies the, 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 the weaving point. Strange times, man. Strange yeah, times. That's the worst. I hate cancel culture so much. <laughs> I just heard, I don't know if you know this or know the show. I just had a discussion about today. Lindsay Vaughn had a show on Netflix like a couple of months ago where leader of the pack and she would go out and these dogs would have these wonderful adventures and they got, and she got canceled by the cancel culture. And I didn't see this show enough to know, like, but I'm certain they weren't out there beating animals. I think they were out there letting these dogs have adventures literally. And somehow right. you know, a group of people got together and they said, we don't like the, what you're doing to these dogs and we're going to cancel you. And it sounds like, the corporate America said, oh, fuck, well, I guess they'll cancel that too. And what people don't realize is that if you're a dog lover and you think you went out there and protected those dogs, all you did was you made sure that there will not be another dog show made for five years. And and all the rest of the world that have no idea whether they like or don't like dogs anymore, they're not going to even be asked that discussion because there's not they're not it's not going to be in their media's flow. Yeah. The media just walk away from it all and say, screw animals. You're a hot button. I don't want to touch. Yeah, Netflix is going. Whew, guess we're not touching dogs for a while now. Totally. totally. <laughs> Lindsay Vaughn, dogs were playing, and that got canceled. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't get it. And then, then you can go out and watch. I'm watching the show. Uh, yeah, Yellowstone. Have you seen Yellowstone? Yeah. Oh yeah. So obviously, if you've seen it, like it's all rodeo stuff, you know. And whether you like or don't like the rodeo stuff, there's like they, they're tying. You know, bulls are tying ropes around their their nuts and making them buck with dudes on their back. Like I can understand why why groups might get angry at that show. Like that, whether I agree with it, or don't agree with it. I'm not a rodeo guy. I don't know enough about. It. I've never been to a rodeo, so I don't know enough about it. But at least I watch it and go, okay, I can kind of see if that there's going to be groups that'd be mad about it. And yet that show carries on, does just fine. And some show where they got these dogs out having fun adventures with Lindsay Vaughn the skier. I'm like. What what is what I, I kinda wanna watch the show now to know what they were so mad about. Yeah. I don't know how they pick which shows to cancel. Um I was on um Kimmel. I should probably use the proper term on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Uh and we had a pot bellied pig and you know, and, and we our process of having these animals, like we 
we have vetted and vetted and we've seen where these animals live. We know the track records of where they come and go. You, it, you, we do a lot of work making sure these are good people who are bringing these animals on. And so we know a lot about the animals that eventually go on there. And so I was promoting the, the, the puppy bowl and Jimmy, I am holding a pot belly pig. And Jimmy asked me, Oh, how big is this pot belly pig going to be? And it's mom and dad who were like 12 and 13 were there, but backstage. So it was a baby one. But I, I know how big the, that one was likely to get because mom and dad, full grown, were, were just right there. I just played with them. And so I said, oh, this one probably, you know, never going to get more than 30 or 40 pounds. Thought nothing of it ever again. But there's a pot-pellied pig group, and I hope to God they're not fans <laughs> of the show. And they attacked and they attacked. And the funny thing is they're all kind of old, bickety ladies. So like you see this lady and her Facebook profile is like very sweet and kind and she's kissing this puppy pig and she's crazy angry. This is the reason why there are so many sanctuaries needed for puppy pigs because you convince people they're only going to be 40 pounds and they grow up to be 140 and I hate you for saying that. And so then I, so, but I think, well, these people are clearly sweet, nice people. They can't be internet trolls. They, they care about these potbelly pigs. I should engage with them. So I picked this one older lady who has this like knitting profile. And I'm like, I love your passion. I'm so glad you're looking out for your animals. In this particular case, I knew the parents. I, I know how big this one was. So I get the, the, the general problem and, and, and I could post something about that. But these one, I, I actually was correct in what I said. <laughs> the response was, fuck you. I hope you die. <laughs> but I can't believe I'm getting this from this, this nice old lady. <laughs> like animal people online are passionate let's just say wow and i tell you if they see this podcast they are going to email me again like crazy and i'll have another <laughs> another death threat on my hands well uh yeah we we haven't uh had the pleasure of of dealing with anything of that capacity yet and uh i'm sure it's coming down, down the pipe eventually but oh, it will. um it will. sure uh, I, I just want to touch on Africa one one quick time here, just to get your opinion on like the you know the, the way you, you talked about the like the it's almost like a trophy farm by the sounds of it the the hunting over there and uh, if it's not that it's it's the ecotourism and then and then uh, farming but like what are like is there wild populations kind of left over there or is it just everything being exploited by by uh, either trophy hunters or yeah or, i'm glad you brought that up because it was something i thought about while you guys were talking and then i i, I lost it uh, as we continued our conversation so canadians like us we have wild space we have so much wild space so we think of the wild as these fenceless endless areas which is why we have populations of caribous and mountain lions and everything else that can span our country when we think of africa we assume it has to be something similar when truthfully now, a wild space that isn't fenced or protected is not that wild. It is poached, it is cleaned out. There are definitely some big national parks, some big tr uh, tracts of land that uh, the African governments have tried to keep fenceless in order to have their large population. So I'm thinking more East Africa where you see the great migration and all that kind of stuff. They realize that as an ecosystem, they have to keep those fences down. But in order to have all that, they do patrol it. They patrol it, you know, to the nth degree um, because it's just there's too much poverty living around those wildlife. And those wildlife 
um, they mean dollars. You know, whether it's a rhino horn or a little impala, you know, you're either food for my kid's belly or, you know, maybe that hide I can sell at the market or maybe whatever it is. There is so much value in that wildlife that is unprotected. You will never get subsistence poaching out of Africa, um, which is also fine because subsistence poaching doesn't have as large an impact. Um, it's, you know, it's really the, the mass hunting. But I guess to answer your question is, generally speaking, definitely in Southern Africa, where you would might maybe go and have your safari, it's definitely your, your trophy hunting. Those are usually own tracts of land that are fenced, patrolled. Those animals are purchased at, a, at a, uh, an auction, just like you would cattle. They, they fill up their property. Their hunters come in and, and, and they choose what they want to hunt. Uh, and then they, they fill them up the next season or five seasons later, whatever it happens to be. So even the national parks in Southern Africa have to have big fences around you. You think of things like Kruger Park and all that kind of stuff. They're big tracts of land. They do allow natural flow of ecosystems. But uh, to some degree, there is at some end point a fence. And, and there is a lot of conservation groups that are working very hard to amalgamate groups. So there's a lot of private land that borders Kruger Park where they've been able to um, come up with a treaty, for lack of a better word, of how they treat their animals in order to expand that fence, expand the fenceless area. But when an animal is on your property, you own it. Whereas in Canada, if a deer is on in your backyard, it's still a property of the government. Mm -hmm. You can't just go and blast it because it's yours. You have to get your tag. So that's one difference. So you know, you imagine if you're average Joe and 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 a a white rhino decides to walk on your in your backyard. You don't want that thing to walk out of your yard ever again. It's worth three hundred thousand dollars. So you would immediately throw up your fence and say, "This is mine. I'm going to protect it." And 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 so there aren't many big wild spaces that that are that have natural flow. And the places that they are aren't protected and therefore really heavily poached. Wow, that's incredible. It. Uh... For part of the conversation there that they were talking about with uh, with the poaching and and the and like the market hunting, I guess you can call it, just kind of reminded me of uh, like not too long ago here in North America when when like people wiped out the great like bison herds and and stuff like that just because for dollars, right? Yep, yep. Let's get rid of it. They're worth something, uh, and. And it's that mass hunting, you know, that that grouped mass hunting. It wasn't like two or three, you know, Joes on a Saturday that went out and blasted one or two or even, you know, one past their limit. Uh, that really wouldn't have an effect because if the ecosystem's healthy, the, the animals will always figure out a way to, yeah. to exist. Yeah. Um, Sheldon, you got anything else on uh, on Africa here? I think um... – my Africa. I, I think we could probably talk for hours about all the questions I might have, for Africa, <laughs> but I might have to keep that if uh, Dave ever comes back onto our podcast. Keep those uh, questions for the next time. But yeah, it would be nice to kind of maybe switch uh, switch gears and talk quick about a little bit of North North America. Uh, Chase, I think you got a couple questions for Dave for about that, and then uh, we'll wrap her up after that. I think. Yeah. So uh, Dave, obviously, you spend lots of time around big cats. I'm assuming you have. Uh, uh, so, some knowledge, uh, kind of regards, uh, some cougars in North America here. And, and, uh, I mean, one of the, the more popular things that's happening here in Manitoba is we're having like more and more cougar sightings and whether that's, that's due to like, like, uh, you know, better communication between people, uh, better, 
you know, people have trail cameras out there, so they're getting definitive evidence that, uh, you know, that was a cougar, that wasn't, you know, some deer walking past or a house cat that looks big or something like that, right? So, right. um, and, and like lots of the research, I guess, that, 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 uh, people are saying because there i mean obviously isn't a whole bunch of research i i think there's a couple collar cats cruising around but um i think the big question is for us is like regarding like a um a breeding population and like people have been seeing these cats for decades around here and it like i'm, I'm kind of curious as to like what your thoughts are behind they're saying there's not really a there's no evidence of a breeding population because of you know the the cats that they have captured and I guess their ages and there there's no evidence of like a, a litter or whatever. Why do you think there there hasn't been that that uh, transition to like a, a breeding population here? Is there so so you, there's there's a lot of interesting parts of that that you would unpack. So the general consensus with predators is if the, if you're seeing them they're there, and particularly with mountain lions or cougars. Um, if you're seeing them multiple times, there's likely some residents, right? So uh, the fact that you're not seeing the cubs is rarely because they're not there. You know, the minute you're starting to see them on a regular basis, in general, they're going to be there. So the reason why I say that is what we know about a predator is a predator really likes to have a couple techniques. And in fact, we think that the number is around 80%. 80% of the time, a predator will choose the same specific hunting technique. So what that means is, particularly with females, because their uh, home ranges are a little bit smaller, they'll have three or four of their favorite seasonal hunting grounds, meaning in the spring they know where their food is, and in the fall they'll know where their food is, and they'll, and they'll, and they'll shift within their home range uh, to those favorite hunting grounds. So because of that, in general, if you're seeing them, you're probably within their home range. And, and, and if you're not on one of their hunting paths, you're between them. And so we know behaviorally they like to have patterns because those patterns allow them to, to get good at their techniques. And those techniques, the better they get, the more likely they are to eat and then breed, et cetera, et cetera. So their, their behavior isn't, as you might think, with these animals anyway, oh, they're just shifting paths. You know, they're, they're, there's no residence here. They're just walking on by and we know they can move up to 350 miles in a day you know that's not really the most likely scenario when you're seeing them you're seeing them because you do have residents and therefore i would suggest you probably do have cubs being born in those same home ranges if you're seeing a female she is a small ish compared to other cougars she has a place somewhere now, the next element of that then is, well, why? Why aren't we seeing cub tracks? Why don't we see young very often? And it's because it wasn't that long ago as these guys were hunted as vermin. The reason they got wiped out of the southern areas or the more inhabited areas of Ontario and, and Montana, uh, Manitoba isn't because the deer went away. We all know where the deer are. And if there's deer, there are mountain lion able to hunt. We wiped them out. And what we have found is, you know, when we talk about the inherent fear that you're born with, right? So lions have an inherent fear of humans. That fear isn't inherent. That fear is absolutely 100% taught. And we know that in a lot of different ways. We know that because there are individuals that grow up with, with the same fears that their parents had, and it seems to be a culture. And, and we also know that the opposite is also true. When a cub 
is able to survive even though he uh, didn't have mom teaching him all of his different hunting techniques. Mom maybe gets hit by a car. We know that's the most dangerous of all of the cats because it's not taught to fear humans. So those are the ones that you often see in people's hunting camps or in people's backyards or eating people's dogs. Likely is they weren't given that lesson. People are dangerous. So my point is, if in the 50s and 60s, we were hunting them as vermin, the only ones that survived were the ones that were smart and clever and really good at hiding. Um, and, and culturally, generationally, we're not that, you know, 40 years is not that many steps. So for the last 40 years or more, 60 years, whatever, they've been taught, stay, the, stay away from those guys. You know, and, and, and I think that's probably why, it's probably more likely to be the case as to why you're not seeing cubs particularly, because moms are very cautious when they have cubs and less cautious when they don't have cubs. Um, or even when they're pregnant, they're, they, they become a little bit more cautious and they become a little bit more, um, they gravitate to, to particular areas where they know they're safe and where they, where they think there's food. So with all of those elements coming in, what I'm telling you is if, if, if you're getting multiple reports, there's a lot more of them there than you think. Mm -hmm. Now, another element of that is, you know, just because we don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. I think that if you had a lot of really good trackers out there, they'd probably see consistent tracks all the time. Whereas the average hunter, they're wonderful at what they've been taught. And they've been taught to hunt deer and, and moose and those types of things. But not many of us at this age group were ever taught how to track a mountain lion, where to find it. You know, generally speaking, people if they, nowadays, if they want to find them, they have to get dogs. So my point to, to that is you're probably stepping on, walking past thousands of signs of mountain lions. You just don't see them. And the fact, you, you, I, I don't know many people who actually out there hunting deer actually come across mountain lion because they're just they're too good at being secretive i think it will take generations of good hunters and good naturalists and people out there to teach them where they're having those odd encounters the odd runner the odd hunter the odd person who bumps into that young cat where the person sat there you know enjoyed the mountain lion sighting mountain lion went off and that person went off once you start having those type of interactions you're going to start to see them more, but that's generational. That's, yeah. you know, that cat then going to show his cubs, hey, you know, yes, be, away, be, be wary of those people, but I've seen them before. They're usually pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. And and uh, obviously we're not claiming to be any sort of specialist on, uh, on cougars at all. We don't know a whole bunch, but they have been a hot topic here in Manitoba for the last little bit just because of the increased sightings. And uh, yeah, so I figure you'd have some good insight on it. So it's, it's no, kind of... You it's, might Ask this question to another podcast guest in the future. I won't. I won't call that person out. But uh, I know that in Ontario, in a particular area where I went to school, there was lots of mountain confirmed mountain lion sightings that the government just kept quiet for fear that people would want to hunt them. So the the the, the wildlife manager was well aware that there was a population, whether whether it be very very small or not, existed in that area. But he kept his mouth shut. He didn't want, you know, the scared old lady to be like, oh, I don't want mountain lions around. Or the avid, hey, I'd really like to have one of those hung up on my my mantelpiece. You know, I think I, I think the consensus when I was in amongst that group of people making those decisions, it sounded like they wanted to just let the mountain lions be mountain lions, let that population grow, let it start, you know, becoming a little bit more healthy before they so they could have a population to manage, I, th I think was the consensus. Mm -hmm. 
definitely as uh yeah as the population grows here too i mean i i i can uh reflect on some of those similar i guess feelings that that you you kind of said people were i'm sure were thinking about too and like some of the some of the sightings were in some of the areas that that we do quite a bit of elk hunting in and it's uh although i i would absolutely love to see one in the wild i think yeah. i'd uh have to change my gitch if i seen one when i was yeah. out archery elk hunting <laughs> you make a great point so i think that probably 50 years ago people thought that same way of black bears and i assume you're not nervous if you see a black bear in the bush i i don't know you very well but my point to that is you've met enough people who've seen bears. They said, hey, you know, just stand your ground. If they come a little close, clap your hands. If you got a bear banger, use it if you're nervous. But generally speaking, they're pretty good. You need to have enough people to say the exact same things about mountain lions. I can tell you that. I've bumped into, not not in the wild, but I, I know mountain lions very well. And I've interacted with lots of mountain lions. The exact same behavior is going to work for a mountain lion as for a bear. Your bear banger is going to work. Your bear spray is going to work. You're standing in a group, you're clapping your hands. If you have a small dog, pick it up. All the same stuff that we would tell people about a bear, you tell them about a mountain lion. And I guarantee you, generationally, generationally, we'll start having other outdoorsy people say that same story, and then the nerves won't be there. And mm-hmm. then, and, and then the, the, the group of the population that's just going to blast whatever mountain lions close by because, holy shit, I was scared, that's going to reduce. And, and I think it's, it, I've always tried to preach to people even as young as my five-year-old son when I when I go and give talks to his class don't be scared of bears enjoy them just make sure you're safe around them yeah. mountain lions are the exact same thing they're a sweet kind and a very timid animal uh and you use that to your advantage if you get nervous around a mountain lion clap your stinking hands a mountain lion does those mock charges the same as a bear i don't know if you've seen a, a female yeah. bear when she tries to scare uh a, you know a person or someone away when they come at you and they stomp their feet and they make that noise like a bluff charge really all they're doing is getting you to stand still so their babies can run up a hill because a bear actually who wants to come and get you is very very silent uh a mountain lion's very similar we've seen you know youtube videos of mountain lions waving their tail around and you know think if it was trying to kill a kill an elk he's not going to go and throw his tail (laughs) around you know they know how to kill things you know that guy was being told to go away and if you listen then you'll be fine and, and, and the mountain lion will be fine and everybody will be fine. So uh, that is a great point that you made there. Uh, don't be nervous. Just be smart. You know, and make sure you got your safety plan ready. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's, that is that is actually pretty funny. I, or not, I guess it's not really funny. It's kind of like common knowledge that people might not think about, but I, I've never really thought about a, if I seen a cougar and it started growling at me and waving its tail, I'd probably be freaked out, but. He's probably trying to scare me off. But, uh, yeah, Dave, uh, what what do you got going on now? We'll try to wrap it up here. I know I think everyone's getting ready for supper here on uh, all ends of the Internet. So what do you what do you got going on now and what uh, where can we see you and uh, find you on either uh, TV or on the Internet? I'd say right now I am the uh, you know, I'm still working with Animal Planet and they're 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 big animal expert. Uh, we are in the works with some stuff. Obviously, in Canada, I'm not sure exactly what's airing up here. Um Follow my Instagram. It's the one that I try my best to be as interactive with. So that's the one that I'll be able to tell people about and show. If you've got a younger generation that you'd like to watch some of your, um, some smaller sort of animal friendly things, uh, my show on Facebook is called Animal Bites with Dave Salmoni. And that's a, it's a very upbeat kind of, uh, it's one that you can, you know, you can enjoy as an adult, but also watch with your five-year-old and know that I didn't put anything too bloody or scary in it. Um, (laughs) 
Uh, so it's definitely one that I like to introduce people to as uh, they're trying to get their kids interested in animals. That's awesome. That's awesome. Chase, do you got anything else here for Dave before we uh, let him go? That's about it, man. I just, uh, thanks for coming on, Dave. Um, okay, I mean, thanks for reaching out guys. I think, I think, uh, you know, I, I gained quite a bit of knowledge on, on how things are kind of rolling in Africa there and just, uh, on cougars, Af- actually on that little short stint you gave and, and, uh, man, I, I love your passion that you're, that, uh, you have for animals and I, I, uh, yeah, I, thanks again. Appreciate for, it. For, for I think us. from my end, uh, the most important thing that I drew from this was that the meat and potatoes of this discussion, when we just, when we talked about the fact that regardless of your opinions of wildlife, it's the discussion you have to have, you know, I'm sure yeah. I'm certain three of us don't all agree on everything, but be having a, a podcast like this, where you're willing to allow me to express my opinions, you guys get to express your opinions and your listeners get to walk away and make their own opinions is really the only way we're going to have any, any functional conservation in the world going forward. So thanks for that guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I'm going to echo just about everything Chase said, but I do have one more little thing I need to mention. And, uh, Brothers in Blood. That's how I kind of seen your name. I kind of got uh, became became a fan, I guess I would say. I thought that uh, movie was our, our documentary or whatever was totally fascinating. Um, oh, so so awesome work on that. Um, oh, thank uh, you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a shame you didn't tell me that earlier. I've got some great stories with those lions. <laughs> well, man. Another time. Yeah, we'll have to get you on again. And like Chase said, thank you very much for taking the time to do it. We understand that it's, even though it is COVID life, it is very, very busy as well. So um, taking the time, I mean, you did say it at the start, talking to fellow Canadians, you always do it. So we appreciate that. Thank you very much for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. All right. See you later, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, folks, to episode 78. Uh, we're so glad you joined us on this episode and we hope you took something away from it from Dave. Big thanks to Dave again for coming on the episode with us. Just a phenomenal guy. Uh, great knowledge coming out of him and great, great conversations and great conversations to build on from there, I believe. Um, Sheldon, what do you got? Um, I just want to talk about the store quickly before we call this one quits for tonight, but We've got uh, some new decals in the store. So if you're looking for something to put on your boat, your quad, truck, car, whatever you want to do, um, we've got some some really cool decals. We got, we got white and black on a on a see-through backing. So it looks really slick on, on a back of a pickup truck. Um, and then we also got the kind of like a new, it's not a logo, it's kind of like a new logo, I guess, where it's kind of a rectangle and it'll look good on basically anything as well. Like you put on your laptop even. Uh, so we're going to have those in the stores, store and available. Um, and other than that, all of our other stuff is there. Uh, everything's fully stocked, basically. I think we're out of, out on one set of sweaters. But other than that, all our hats are there. Uh, we're out of toques now, and we won't be restocking them until next year. I think we might have one or two left of of a few colors. So other than that, we got the new goosenecks. We call them the goose band. So it's uh, it's like a tube or, or a buff kind of style. It's the same as our moose one. They're super nice and very, very, um, they're going to be, they work really well. Like I've always used one like snowmobiling and fishing and hunting and stuff. Uh, They can get you out of a bind quite often. So if you're looking for one of them, uh, look us up. They're on our website, www.panoramicoutdoors.com. And since we're coming to the end of this episode, folks, sorry to cut you off there, Tristan. Make sure you guys go to this, your, uh, whatever you're listening to this episode on, Click the five stars, leave us a rating, 
and uh, share this episode with whoever think you might be interested. It's going to go a long ways in uh, in uh, keeping us doing what we're doing here. Tristan? Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, what was your favorite part of the campout you had this weekend? Because I had to leave, but like, what did you guys like best about camping out on the lake? Um, I'm going to say two things here. Well, maybe three. Three things. Real quick. <laughs> First one, catching fish inside the... Uh, the uh, Simpson canvas tent was uh, something obviously that I've never done before. I thought it was a very cool experience. Uh, second thing, um, wood smoke and the canvas tent is a great combo. And the third thing, mixing in the smell and aroma of percolating coffee inside that tent with the wood smoke and catching fish is like the hat trick. Yeah, like I don't even know what else to say. Like that's kind of the... The best part of the whole trip. I mean, the one, the two things that I really liked about about it, I guess, was setting it up. Uh, we got to have a little bit of confusion uh, trying to get those pegs into the ice, and you know, just just kind of farting around with you two, and it was you know funny at times, frustrating, etc. But then once you get into the tent, and you know, you're getting ready for bed, and you get into that cot, and you pump that stove as much wood as you can put into it, and kind of just sit there and listen to it crackle, and listen to the wind howl against the side of the tent. Man, it put me to sleep like right away quick. So that was probably my two favorite things. Well, you heard it here, folks. Get out on the ice. Get a little camp out if you can. Remember to be safe. And uh, if nothing else, keep your head sharp. Keep your lines tight. And keep your stick on the ice, Sheldon. Was that the last one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you like. I just make them up. Like my next one might be, you know, clean out your gutters or you're going to get ice jams and wreck your shingles. <laughs> <laughs> that might be our next t-shirt folks <laughs> have a good night thanks for listening